You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Hi, this is Larry. I gave the Sunday sermon this past week at the Village Church. Unfortunately, it wasn't recorded, um, but more than one person has asked me for a recording, so I'm just going to record it again at home, so I hope you enjoy it. Hi, my name is Larry. Welcome to the Village Church. This past week, as some of you may have may know, many people in our country celebrated Juneteenth. Juneteenth is an American holiday that commemorates the announcement of the abolition of slavery uh, in Texas on June 19th, 1865. Maybe some of you know that uh, the abolition of slavery technically happened in 1863, two years before, when Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. That's something we throw around in our history books. And Lincoln declared that all slaves in the South were now free. However, even though this was signed, most of the South was still in rebellion. And so even though the slaves were legally freed, they weren't actually freed. And even after the war ended, after General Robert E. Lee surrendered on April 9, 1865, uh, many slaves still weren't freed, especially in rural areas because slave owners, they intentionally didn't tell the slaves that they were free. And so what happened was certain people bearing good news traveled around the country and they gave the good news of freedom so that gradually, one by one, these slaves learned of their new freedom and were finally freed. And it, months after the Civil War had ended, the good news finally arrived in Texas on June 19th, 1865, and that date is now celebrated as a holiday called Juneteenth. It's an odd concept uh, that Lincoln had declared all the slaves were free already, and the North had already won the war, but many slaves had no idea that they were free. So you have this time period in which they were technically legally free, and uh, but they weren't experiencing their freedom. And so what was the missing link? What was missing that prevented them from experiencing their freedom? What did it take for them to actually start living as freed people? They needed someone to come and tell the good news. And that's similar to our current task of evangelism. God has already signed, declared an emancipation proclamation that we are now free from sin. And God has won the war. And he did that through Jesus dying and rising from the dead. And so we are technically, I mean, so God is offering this freedom to all, but many people aren't experiencing freedom. What is the missing link? Why aren't they experiencing freedom? It's because they need someone to come and tell them the good news. They need someone to come and tell them the good news. And that's what evangelism is all about. Right now, we're going through this three-week sermon series titled Evangelism Today. Last week, we talked about how God speaks through evangelism. He's a speaking God, he's a seeking God, he's a sending God, and that calling of evangelism is the same calling that we have today. It hasn't changed. Um, Today, I want to talk about how our culture speaks. Um, So last week was how God speaks, this week is how our culture speaks, because even though the calling of evangelism hasn't changed, even though God himself hasn't changed, our culture is always changing. And as a result, the way we do evangelism needs to match the changing culture. And so there are things about our evangelism that do, that does need that do need to change, and it's not just a strategic thing; it's a biblical thing. 
throughout the New Testament, you see people doing evangelism in ways that adapt to the cultures they are trying to reach. For example, Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 9, starting from verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might, we- that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And so Paul, he's saying that he is talking to different types of people, and when he talks to different types of people, he behaves differently to those different types of people. He says when he's talking to Jews, he becomes like a Jew. When he's talking to Gentiles, he becomes like a Gentile. Whoever he talks to, he tries to become like that person. And why does he do that? He says that by all means, I might save some. Is Paul being self-contradictory or inauthentic or is he watering down the message or compromising the message no i don't think so paul he's what he's doing is he's just contextualizing the gospel to his audience to the culture of his audience and i want to propose that's what we need to do today you know you might look at paul and you might go why would you bend over backwards for these people why don't you just tell the message like it is why do you need to adapt your message to the people you're talking to Well, in Paul's mind, his goal isn't just to say some words. That's not the end goal. His goal is that he would deliver the good news, quote, that by all means I might save some, end quote. Sometimes, you know, when we do evangelism, uh, we offend people because the gospel is offensive. And that's there's nothing we can do about that. That's just the way it is. However... Sometimes when we do evangelism, we offend people because we are being offensive. Sometimes we offend people because we are being offensive. Maybe it's because we don't understand their language. Maybe it's because we say something that might hurt them and they don't, we don't realize it. Maybe because we're assuming things about them that are false or, or whatever. Maybe it's the, the, our manner, our tone. Maybe we're doing things that are offensive and that is something we can address. That is something we can fix. So Paul is saying, if there is anything I can do to communicate the plain gospel in a contextualized way, in an understandable way, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be offensive. I want to adapt my message to the culture. And you see this clearly throughout the book of Acts. You see multiple examples in this book of Acts. The book of Acts is uh, this book that tracks the first few decades after Jesus rose from the dead. And, And in this book, there are a bunch of these evangelism messages. And uh, you can you can read these evangelism messages, and you and you can allow those messages to inform how we do evangelism today. And you and you know I was reading through tons of these examples earlier. I was going through these messages. There are I mean literally dozens of them, and I noticed something as I was reading them. They are all different. All of these evangelism messages are different. Think about this. You have all these people like Peter and Stephen and Paul. They're giving these messages and they're doing evangelism in these messages and they're all different. You would think that because they're giving the same gospel message, you know, they're not talking about different religions. They're not talking about different savior figures, messiah figures. They're talking about the same message. You would think that their messages would be pretty similar. But if you look at them, they're actually quite different. And the reason why... Is because all of these speeches are given in different contexts 
to different people. In other words, all of these people who are giving messages are taking into account the culture of the people they are talking to. Let's just look at two examples, okay? Acts 2 and Acts 17. In Acts 2, uh, you can read them on your own time, but Peter, he is talking to devout Jews on the day of Pentecost. The, the day of Pentecost is this religious holiday, and so a lot of people travel to Jerusalem for this holiday, and uh, they are very devout Jews who know the scriptures inside and out. And then Acts 17, it's a very different scenario. Paul is talking to a group of Gentile philosophers and thinkers, and these people have little or to no knowledge of Judaism. And so if you look at these two speeches, you'll notice that they are a world of differences. For example, in Acts 2, Peter, he quotes a ton of Old Testament scriptures. And he does that because he's talking to Jews who know and understand and believe and trust these Old Testament scriptures. They hold these scriptures with high regard. But Paul in Acts 17, he doesn't quote the Old Testament at all. And the reason why is because these scriptures would be unfamiliar or foreign to most of them. And so what did Paul do? Paul translated the gospel into their language, in a sense, by quoting non-Christian Greek poets. Okay, These are poets. Earlier, you know, Jason, he mentioned, in him we move, live and move and have our being. And that quote was used in Acts 17, and Paul was quoting this Greek poet. So Paul, trans, he's adapting the gospel to the language of the people, to the, to the familiar sayings of the people. Uh, additionally, you know, Paul, I mean, sorry, Peter in Acts 2, he's spending a lot of time talking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He uh, knew that the Jews, they were anticipating a Messiah figure. And so his whole thesis, his whole, I mean, if you just look at his main point, you could sort of summarize, sum it up as Jesus is the Messiah. And so he's spending a lot of time unpacking how Jesus lived, how he died, how he rose again to, to prove through the scriptures that he's using that Jesus is the Messiah. However, in Paul in Acts 17, he doesn't actually talk about Jesus all that much. He mentions him in passing almost because the Greeks, they weren't looking for a Jewish Messiah. And so Paul knew that spending too much time talking about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, I mean, the, the Greeks, they weren't ready for that yet. And so what did Paul do instead? He spends a lot of time talking about God's creation and God's authority over humanity and how we are all accountable to this God. And that's Paul's main point. And so you see there are two speeches right here. And they're given in different contexts to different people. And the evangelists, Peter and Paul, they're contextualizing the gospel messages to their audience. They're taking into account their culture. And this concept should radically affect how we do evangelism today. Because it means when we do evangelism, we need to understand who we are talking to. We need to understand how we can adapt and contextualize the gospel message to the culture of the people we are talking to. And it might mean that doing evangelism uh, cannot simply consist of just quoting or memorizing some things and, and just saying them, just regurgitating things that you've memorized. Um, you know, sometimes people think, oh, when I'm doing evangelism, what that means is I'm going to memorize these four points or these 20 points. And so if I just say these 20 points, then I'm doing evangelism. And maybe you are, but I would say maybe there are better ways of doing evangelism. Um, because if you are just memorizing these 20 points, 
they might work for some people, but those specific 20 points might not be as effective for other people. They might actually just sound like gibberish to other people because it's not enough just to know the message. We also need to know our hearers. You know, you can think about it this way. Evangelists are a bit like translators. And sharing the gospel is a little bit like the art of translation. Uh, What does it mean to be a translator? Well, the job of a translator is to accurately convey a message uh, from one language to another language. You know, and what we're trying to do is we're communicating a message from one language to another language. It's not technically a language. It's metaphorically a language. What I mean by uh, this different language, I mean that we're talking to a culture that has different beliefs, different values, different priorities. And all of these differences are natural barriers that prevent people from understanding the gospel, prevents people from receiving the gospel. And, uh, you know, here's the thing. Many people in America today, our, our culture is moving in this direction in which if you were to share the gospel in, let's say, using a traditional tract, it will almost be as if you're speaking a different language. And I want to clarify, once again, I'm not talking about compromising or watering down the message or hiding certain parts of the message or, you know, anything like that. You know, the goal of translation, we're not trying to water down the message or compromise the message. The goal of translation is to accurately communicate the message in an understandable way. And so my goal is to make the gospel message understandable. Okay, so that's our goal. Well, how do we how do we be translators? How do we make this understandable? Well, we need to know two languages. That's what translators do. They learn the language they're translating from and the language they're translating to. And so we need to do that too. We need to learn the language of God and we need to learn the language of the culture. We need to learn the language of God and we need to learn the language of the culture. And that's how we effectively translate the message. For And if you only know the language of God and you don't know the language of the culture, you're just going to come across as archaic, strange, foreign, offensive, you're going to be speaking gibberish because you're not speaking the language of the culture. However, if you only know the language of the culture and you don't know the language of God, then you won't have anything new to offer. You won't have anything to say. You will be exactly like those around you. And so we need to know both languages, the language of God and the language of the culture. We need to stand in the gap between these two worlds so that we can effectively translate the language of God into the language of the culture. Okay, so let's get into the details. How exactly is the language of God different from the language of the culture? Um, you know, we've been talking theoretically, but let's get down deep. In other words, we can think about it this way. What are some cultural barriers that prevent people in our culture from understanding the gospel? What are some cultural barriers? What are some things that people have that prevent them from understanding or receiving the gospel naturally. So, because after all, if we want to translate the gospel into the language of our culture, we need to know what the language of the culture is. We need to know what are the obstacles, what are the barriers. So, I'm just going to go through four big cultural barriers to effective evangelism today. Here are four big cultural barriers that prevent people from receiving the gospel today. Number one, many non-Christians don't understand the Christian language Literally, many non-Christians don't understand the Christian language literally. We've been using this concept of language metaphorically, but sometimes it is true literally. 
And uh, I'll just read this first. This is Paul's, uh, This is Acts 17. Paul, uh, he's giving the speech to the men of Athens. And, and before that speech, uh, this is what happens, okay? The author of Acts provides the context for the speech, starting from verse 19. And they, this is the people in Athens, took him, this is Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus, that means Mars Hill, that's the, a location where Paul was. And, and they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Okay, so these people, they were hearing the stuff that Paul was talking about. uh, And they were saying, you bring some strange things to our ears. Some strange things to our ears. And that is how many people today think of Christianity. They hear Christian things and it's so foreign, it's so unfamiliar, it's so bizarre to them that they don't have any paradigm for it. So they think, you bring some strange things to our ears. And a lot of it has to do with the words we say. Here's what I mean. Many Christians, they are so immersed in this Christian bubble. And in this Christian bubble, they use this Christianese language. And uh, and and if you go outside of this bubble and you use this Christianese language, there are people outside of this bubble, they have no idea what you're talking about because those words and those definitions of those words are only used within this Christian bubble. Okay, By Christianese language, I mean words like justification, sanctification, holiness, sin, fellowship, glory, brokenness, the lost, intentional, discernment, stronghold, missional, communion, grace, testimony. All of these words in the Christian world, in this Christian bubble, we're using these words left and right, and we ha- we assume sort of a mini dictionary that we all sort of understand these words. But outside of this Christian bubble, a lot of people, they don't use these words. Or if they use these words, they use them in very different ways. I mean, to be fair... Okay, we use a lot of these words because they're in the Bible. Okay, so because they're in the Bible, we got to use these words. And for better or for worse, people who translated the Bible, Bible translators, a lot of them chose words that most of the world doesn't use. Okay, most of the world, they don't use some of these words that Bible translators put into the Bible. Maybe they used them a few hundred years ago, but they don't use them anymore. But regardless, we have these words in the Bible. And so in order to communicate to other Christians, we need to use those words. That's not my point. My point is we need to also learn how to talk about these concepts without using these words. So, of course, we got to use these words. They're in the Bible. If we want to, you know, go to Awana and we want to memorize these words and, and these, these verses, we got to use these words. However, if... We're talking to people who are unfamiliar with Christianese, then we have to learn how to communicate these without using Christianese. Think about it, okay? Here's some examples. Let's think of the word grace. Grace, that's a word we throw a lot, throw around a lot in Christian circles, and we use it to refer to this idea that God saves us and loves us not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so it's unmerited favor. He looks at us favorably despite of our sin. Okay, so that's what we use when we, that's what we mean when we use the word grace. However, in non-Christian circles, many people don't use that word grace that way. When they use the word grace, they're thinking like, oh, that ballet dancer is a very graceful dancer. Or maybe if they have some Christian background, they might say, oh, grace is, you know, what you say before you eat. And they're referring to prayer before you eat. And, and so, do you get what I'm saying? There are very different 
uses for this word grace. And so when you're using this word grace, they don't understand. Let's take another word, fellowship. When Christians use this word fellowship, they're referring to this relational union and connection that we have because we're all united to God and and therefore we're united to one another. We have this relational dynamic. That's what we mean when we use the word fellowship. The non-Christian world, they don't use the word fellowship that way. Usually when they're referring to that word fellowship, they're thinking of like a special training program. Like, uh, like uh, you know, after your residency in, in, as a doctor, you know, you do a fellowship program or you have a special teaching program that's a fellowship. Or maybe if they're not familiar with those examples, when they think of fellowship, they just automatically think of the book or the movie Fellowship of the Rings, a Fellowship of the Ring. And, uh, you know, that's just what they think of when they, you, when they think of that word fellowship. And so here's my point. We need a generation of Christians who know how to communicate the gospel in a way that doesn't include Christian jargon, that doesn't include Christianese. Because the more we keep up this Christianese, the stranger we will seem to people and the more irrelevant we will be to the rest of the world. You know, it used to be 50 years ago, our nation was more or less Christianized And many people, they didn't have to be Christian, and they already understood Christian words. But many people today, they don't understand those Christian words anymore. And so we need to learn how to communicate things like sin or grace uh, or justification in a way that that is down-to-earth that people can understand. Number two, many non-Christians are post-Christian. Many non-Christians are post-Christian. By post-Christian, I mean... They used to be Christian, and they're not Christian anymore. Peter says something kind of insightful in 2 Peter 2, verse 20 and 21. He's talking about people who at one point, they identified as followers of Jesus, but since then, they've left the faith. They've become entangled by the world. And he says in verse 20, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. He's saying, he's talking about this group of people. They, At one point in time, they escaped the defilements of the world. They pledged themselves to Jesus. But later, they rejected Jesus once again. They became entangled by the world. And he's saying it would have been better for them to never have been exposed to Christianity than now to, you know, reject Christianity, having once identified with Christianity. And so, and you might wonder, why is that? Why is it better for them to never have heard? Well, you can probably think of examples in your own life, just people you know where that has been the case. Many of you probably know people who at one point in their time, at one point in their life, they were Christians, they identified as Christians, and then later they left the faith. And you know that those people are some of the most antagonistic people to the Christian faith you've ever met. At one point in time they were Christians and now they're not. And now being a Christian is the last thing they want to do. Right? And you can, and you can say that they are post-Christian. They are post-Christian. They have moved beyond Christian, uh, being Christians. They may have this attitude of, you know, I tried Christianity before. It's not for me. Or, you know, I have a Christian background. I grew up in the church. You know, 
I did the whole youth group thing or I said the prayer or I was baptized and it doesn't work for me. I moved on from that. Sometimes they talk about it from a big picture cultural standpoint. They might say something like, you know, America uh, used to be a Christianized nation. You know, we had a lot of Christian influence. We have a lot of Christian traditions. You know, we have things like, you know, in God we trust or, you know, we have under God and our Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, but, you know, our, our culture is advancing and progressing and we're moving on to other things. Maybe Christianity, you know, used to serve us, used to help us become moral people. But now, you know, we we know things like science and philosophy and we have all these, these social movements where Christianity is just not relevant anymore. It's not relevant anymore. And maybe it used to be relevant, but our society has progressed, progressed beyond Christianity now. You know, it's, uh, regardless of what they say, it's this mentality that can be summed up with been there, done that. Been there, done that. And uh, they think because I've done this before, or rather, you know, in some cases maybe they haven't, but they just think they've done it before. So because I think I've done this before, I'm not open to picking it up again. Why would I pick it up again? I already went through it. I already went through the system and I, I realized, I found out I understand it doesn't work for me. Maybe it works for you. It doesn't work for me. You know, it's like a person who says, I don't like broccoli. And you go, why don't you like broccoli? And they go, you know what? I just don't like bland food. I don't like steamed food. I don't like bland food. I don't like steamed food. And then you ask, well, you know, broccoli doesn't have to be bland or steamed. You know, and, you, and they go, it doesn't matter. I don't like bland food or steamed food. And you realize, you realize that their whole life, every time they've had broccoli, it's be, it's when the broccoli was bland and steamed. You know, okay, think about this. Broccoli is a super nutritious food. We want kids to eat broccoli. However, when you go to all these restaurants, you go to all these places where people serve broccoli, it's always bland, it's always steamed. How are you going to get people to eat broccoli? You know, but that's that is how people think of Christianity. Okay? You you might you know, you might when you think about broccoli. You might go, you know what, there's a way to eat broccoli that's not bland to see. What you do is you put olive oil, garlic, salt, pepper on it. You stick it in the oven. You get oven-baked broccoli. And then you go, you know what, have you ever had oven-baked broccoli? And they go, you know, it doesn't, I, I'm already beyond that, okay? I don't like steamed food. I don't like bland food. And so what he's done, okay, he's associated broccoli with bland steamed vegetables, he can't disassociate the two. Every time he thinks broccoli, he thinks blandness, steamedness. He can't disassociate the two concepts. And so because he has this association between broccoli and blandness and steamedness, he's going to reject all broccoli no matter what form it takes. And that's how people think of Christianity. They had a few experiences with Christianity that they didn't like, okay? And forever ingrained in their mind is this association. Whenever they think of Christianity, they think of these negative associations. Whenever they think of Christianity, they think bland, steamed. And they think, I tried that, it didn't work for me. What we need today are Christians who know how to bake broccoli. We need Christians who know how to bake broccoli. And what I mean by that is they need to understand the beauty, the glory of Christianity and be able to communicate that in a way to people who have never witnessed and experienced the beauty and glory of Christianity before. Their whole lives, they've looked at Christianity and they've they've thought bland, steamed, boring, dry. And we need Christians to be able to communicate this 
Christianity that you think you know, you actually don't know. You haven't really discovered what Christianity is meant to be. If you truly understand Christianity, you'll see it as beautiful, as relevant, as glorious. We need people to help post-Christian people recover their true Christian heritage that they never even experienced in the first place. They need to experience these parts of Christianity that they never realized. We need people to be able to look at their lives. We need people to look at the lives of these non-Christians who've assumed from the get-go that they know Christianity and they've discarded it because they think they know it already. And we need to be able to communicate, you know what? There are aspects of Christianity... There's glory in Christianity. There's joy in Christianity. There's excitement in Christianity that you don't know about. We need Christians who know how to bake broccoli. Number three, many non-Christians have deep beliefs that make Christianity seem offensive to them. Many Christians have these deep ingrained beliefs that make Christianity seem offensive to them. This is an example in Acts 22. Paul, he's sharing the gospel to a group of Jews in Jerusalem. Okay? And he's doing it by incorporating his testimony. That's Christianese testimony. We don't use that. We can just say life story. Okay. So he, Paul, he's using his life story to talk about the gospel and he's telling them in detail about how, about who he was before Jesus and how he's persecuting Christians and then how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and how he was saved. And then he's recounting this vision he had and he's telling this audience of Jews in Jerusalem about this vision he had. Okay, so this is Acts 22, starting from verse 17. And Paul is saying, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him. This is Jesus he's talking about. Saw Jesus saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Okay, reminder, Paul, he is talking to Jews in Jerusalem. Okay, that's very important to understand. Because right here in this vision, Jesus is telling Paul, Get out of Jerusalem. Make haste, get out of Jerusalem. Okay, and Jerusalem is the capital of the Jews. And so Jesus is telling him to leave this capital of the Jews. And and I said, Paul said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So Paul is saying, okay, my former life, I, I killed Christians. I imprisoned Christians. And so I think if I want to share the gospel, I should go to the Jews Because those are my people. They know me. They know my record. They know my past. I have rapport with them. And Jesus, verse 21, And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And catch this. Verse 22, Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Okay, so you have this crowd listening intently to the testimony, the the life story of Paul. He's telling his story and Paul tells him this vision he has where Jesus is telling him, leave Jerusalem, leave the Jews, go instead to the Gentiles. And at this point, even though they were listening intensely, now at this point they are riled up and they say, this man needs to die. This man does not deserve to live. Why is that? Because the Jews could not bear to think that God was sending Paul away from the Jews, away from Jerusalem, to the Gentiles. Because at this time, many Jews, they believed that they alone were God's people. They alone had a special placement in history as God's people. And they could not bear to think that they were, on the equal, that they were equal to everyone else. 
They could not bear to believe that they were not superior to everyone else, that they were not better than everyone else. And so this message that God was giving to to Paul and essentially saying to Paul, leave the Jews, go to the Gentiles, go to the non-Jews, share this gospel, this good news to the Gentiles. This message was offensive to the Jews. It was offensive to the Jews. They couldn't bear to accept that because they had this deeply ingrained belief that they alone deserved the gospel. They alone were better than everyone else. You know, many people today are like that. Maybe not in this exact uh, area of offense, but many people today believe deeply some belief, okay? They have some belief that they hold to very tightly. And when they come across Christianity and Christianity says something different, they are automatically offended by Christianity because Christianity is saying something that is offensive to their belief that they already hold. Christianity contradicts this thing that they hold tightly to. So for example, here's a few examples. Let's say someone believes that if a good God existed, a good God wouldn't allow suffering. If a good God existed, a good God wouldn't allow suffering. They're, they watch the news, they see the poor, they see the hurting, they see the dying all around the world, and they say, man, if there was a good God, how could God allow things like that to happen? I wouldn't want to worship a God like that. That is horrible. The idea of a good God just offends them. They cannot believe that there are Christians out there who believe that there is this loving, powerful God who could stop things, but he chooses not to stop things. And so they think of that idea of God, and that is offensive to them. They just can't accept that. They cannot believe that a God like that would possibly exist. Or maybe they believe, here's another deeply ingrained belief that some people have, all religions are the same. There are multiple paths to God or the spiritual force or whatever. They're all the same. It's not right for one person to try to convince someone to believe in their belief system because everyone has their own path. Everyone has their own background, their own religious belief, their own heritage. So so this idea in Christianity then that Jesus says, I am the way, you know, the, where, you know, where Peter says something like, there is no one under heaven under which you can be saved. You know, so when people hear stuff like that, they say, that sounds exclusive. That sounds offensive. How could you possibly say you're the only way? And the reason why they say that is because they've already made it up in their minds that what they believe is right. And that is namely that there are multiple ways to God. There are multiple valid religions and they're all equally true all equally believable and it's not right for you to say that your way is better than anyone else or your way is exclusively the only way or something like that. And so they have their mind, they have their, whatever it is, they have this deeply rooted belief and they view this deeply rooted belief as non-negotiable. And so a lot of people, they have these beliefs. They have these non-negotiable beliefs and anyone who comes along and tells them otherwise that person automatically is offensive. You know, maybe they'll be nice about it. Maybe they won't say to your face, you're being offensive. But they already believe I'm right, you're wrong, because your belief is offensive to me. So what do we need to do instead? We need to be learners. We need to understand where people are coming from. And we need to address those areas of offense when they happen. You know, and, uh, and here's something else. Sometimes um, a lot of people are offended because they don't truly understand the full picture of Christianity. 
you know, and I think if you take some truths of Christianity and you don't understand other truths, then it can come across as offensive. And so I think what we need to do is we need to ask questions. We need to learn about people. We need to understand what they value, what they don't value. Why are things offensive to them? What are their core values? What are their core beliefs? What what are some things that they really prioritize when it comes to being a good person or it comes to living in this world? And then we need to notice, okay, this is how we can talk to them. This is so for this is what they value. We need to say Christianity also talks about that. God also talks about that. So we need to use those aspects of Christianity as a door, as a common ground to reach them. If you're talking to someone and you know they are offended by a certain aspect of Christianity, it's not heretical to not start your evangelism tactic with that issue. So let's say someone is offended about a certain concept within Christianity. If you're trying to share the gospel with them, okay, and you know that by sharing this concept, you will automatically put the walls up, you will automatically hit some hot button, hot topic issues, and, and so it will be controversial. They're going to reject you from the outset. When you talk about Christianity, it is just wise. It's not deceitful. It's just wise. Start with something else, okay? Learn about what they value, and you say, oh, you know what? What they value, whatever it is, peace, you know, reconciliation, justice. It's okay to start with Christianity talks about things and start there, okay? So don't start with the offensive things. Start with the non-offensive things. Eventually, of course, you want to talk about the offensive things. You don't want to hide. But we first need to understand what people are dealing with. You know, you think about Acts 17. That's exactly what Paul did, right? If, 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 the Jew, if the Greeks in Athens didn't accept the Old Testament scriptures, then don't start with the Old Testament scriptures. Start with something else. So we need to understand the areas of offense where people are coming from and start talking about the gospel in areas that are not offensive that are attractive to them. Number four, many non-Christians do not want to identify with the social perception of Christians. Many non-Christians do not want to identify do not want to identify with the social perceptions of Christians. In other words, they see that Christians are a certain way, they're viewed a certain way, and they don't want to be seen or viewed that way, so they don't want to be a Christian. We see this in Acts 4. Peter and John, they were on trial in front of a council of Jewish leaders because they had healed a lame beggar. That in itself is pretty odd. They healed somebody. You think that's a good thing, but instead they're on trial. Okay, but anyways, this is... Acts 4, starting from verse 13. And when they, this is the Jewish leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So understand the context. These Jewish leaders, they were the rulers of their day. They were powerful. They were not common, uneducated men. Most likely they looked down upon common, uneducated men. And so they were probably offended that these common, uneducated men were boldly talking about Jesus. Okay, let's go on verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And this is fascinating because look at, think about, put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish leaders, okay? They openly admitted to one another 
that Peter and John had healed this man. They openly admitted that this was a notable sign. The man was right there, okay? They're not saying, okay, Peter and John, they just did some juju, and this man, he's just pretending to be healed. He's not healed. They openly recognized the evidence. They recognized, they said, we cannot deny it, okay? So think about this. They knew that there was power in the name of Jesus. They knew that. They weren't denying it. And so you would think, oh, if they knew that, then they would become Christians. They would decide to become followers of Jesus. But they didn't. What did they do instead? What was their conclusion? Let, they said, let's make sure the news doesn't get out. Let's make sure the news doesn't get out. Why would they conclude that? Why would they know that it was true, but not want to join the movement? Because what mattered to them was not whether Christianity was true. They already knew it was true. What mattered to them was whether Christianity benefited them. Whether Christianity benefited them. And they were people in power. They were the religious people, the religious leaders. At, at, at this point, Christianity was this you know, small movement of, uh, of people mostly among the poor, among common uneducated people. And they were just this ragtag group of people and they didn't want to associate with these people. They determined that even though Christianity might be true, they couldn't be Christians themselves because doing so would mean leaving their positions of power, leaving their familiarity, leaving their comfort, and then choosing to identify with these uneducated common men. And they just couldn't simply bear to do that. So what was going on was even though they recognized Christianity was true, they didn't want to identify with the social perception of Christians. And that is going on today. Christians today, maybe they're not perceived as common or uneducated But many Christians today, they have these social perceptions of Christians and they have these these stereotypes in their mind of who Christians are and they say, I don't want to identify with those stereotypes. For example, they might say, Christians are judgmental and I don't want to be judgmental and so I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be perceived as judgmental. Or they might say, Christians are anti-intellectual. I don't want to be an intellectual. I, I think I'm an intellectual. So I don't want people to think I'm dumb. Or Christians are clean-cut prudes. I don't want people to think I'm clean-cut or I'm a prude. Or Christians are politically conservative. And I, I don't view myself as politically conservative. I don't want people to think of me as you know endorsing certain political platforms or, or, or having certain beliefs about people. And so whatever, okay, fill in the blank, whatever the, the impressions of Christians people have, People don't want to associate with those things. People don't want to associate with those stereotypes. And because they don't want to associate with those stereotypes, they would never entertain the idea of becoming Christians. They say, I don't want to be like that. I don't want people to think that I'm remotely like that. And so I don't want to be a Christian. You know, people, they automatically associate, this is inevitable, everybody, they associate certain uh, uh, stereotypes with certain types of people. You know, when you hear characterizations, when you hear like these different types of people, if you just hear words like goth, nerd, hipster, yuppie, when you think of those, you inevitably think of certain stereotypes. Even though not all nerds are blank, you you just sort of automatically assume, oh, there's a nerd, he might be like this. And, you know, and um, you might conclude, for example, uh, let's say you're a guy, you might say, I don't want to be a nerd because girls girls don't find nerds attractive. I don't want to be a nerd because girls don't find nerds attractive. And so what are you doing when you're thinking like that? What you're doing is you're associating certain stereotypes with being a nerd 
namely that they're not attractive. And so therefore, you don't want to be a nerd, even though you might like reading, you might like math, you know, you might like, I don't know what things, chess or whatever, you might not want to associate with being a nerd, you might not go to a chess club, okay, because you realize there is the social perception of nerds not being attractive. You know, on the flip side, maybe uh, there's some people they see a certain type of person and they want to be that type of person because they like the stereotypes, the perceptions that go along with that. Maybe someone would say, I want to be a hipster because hipsters, they're free thinking, they're independent, they're cool, they're anti-mainstream. And I want to be like that. I want people to think of me that way. And so I'm going to try to be a hipster. I want to get hipster haircuts and buy hipster food and, you know, drink hipster uh, drinks like kombucha and I'm going to wear hipster clothes and I'm going to be like all the other hipsters. You know, side note, by doing that, you're actually not being a hipster. You're not, you're actually conforming to a certain way of doing things instead of being free thinking and anti-mainstream and you're actually not being a hipster because true hipsters don't know that they're hipsters. Anyways, when people think of Christian, it's the same way. They have certain stereotypes in their mind whether positive or negative, they have certain perceptions of what it means to be Christians, and then they say, do I like those perceptions? No, then I won't be a Christian. Yes, then maybe I will consider being a Christian. 50 years ago, perception wasn't this concept of perception. It wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, It used to be that people would think, is Christianity true? Yes, then I will be a Christian. No, then I won't be a Christian. But now... It doesn't really matter if Christianity is true to a lot of people. People now ask, how are Christians perceived? And do I want to be perceived that way? Yes, then I'll be a Christian. No, then I don't want to be a Christian. And so today, this is really important for understanding evangelism because you can do great evangelism uh, and convince someone fully that Christianity is true. You can get all the facts straight, all the theology straight, Convince Christianity, uh, convince someone that Christianity is true, but they still may not want to be a Christian because of the simple fact that they are not concerned about whether Christianity is true. They're concerned about whether or not they want to be perceived as a Christian. They're not concerned about truth. They're concerned about perception. Well, if that's the case, then what do we need to do? Simply put, we need a church that is not monolithic. We need a church that is diverse. We need a church that breaks down stereotypes of what it means to be a Christian. We need Christian hipsters. We need Christian nerds. We need Christian goths. We need Christian doctors. We need Christian athletes. We need Christians who are clean cut. We need Christians who are rough around the edges. We need Christians who look this way or look that way, who who are dressed this way or dressed that way, who talk this way or talk that way. We need all sorts of Christians so that When people come across someone who's a Christian, they will say, you know what, I thought that all Christians were like this, and I didn't want to be like that, but I like you. You look like me, and you're a Christian, and that breaks down my stereotype, my cultural barrier of what it means to be a Christian. You know what, maybe I can consider being a Christian too. Maybe I can see myself as a Christian too. We need people who have different beliefs about, let's say, politics. We need people who have different beliefs about whether it's okay to eat certain types of food. We need people who like certain types of music. 
We need all sorts of these types of people. We need a, a diverse set of people who identify as Christians. And we don't. What we don't need. What we don't need is this church that functions like a machine. So that regardless of what background you come from, you become a Christian. You go into this machine and you pop out of this machine, and you're just a clone like everyone else. And so you have the church of clones. Everyone looks exactly like each other. Everyone talks exactly like each other. Everyone uses the same language. Everyone has the same hobbies. Everyone does the same things on the weekends. Everyone eats a certain types of food, same types of food. And, and then when people on the outside, they look at that and they go, you're just a room full of clones. And you're very different from me. I'm very different from you. Why would I want to be like that? I don't identify with any of the things that you do. What we need instead are people who are, are in the church together. They're unified, yes, but they're still celebrating their diversity because they haven't lost those aspects of themselves so that they can go back into their communities where they came from. They can talk to people who are like-minded and these people can say, wow, I thought all Christians were like this, but you are like me. You are like me. I just went through these four big barriers that non-Christians have that prevent them from receiving the gospel you know that the uh, number one, many non-Christians don't understand the Christian language literally. Number two, many non-Christians are post-Christian. Number three, many non-Christians have deep beliefs that make Christianity seem offensive to them. Number four, many non-Christians do not want to identify with the social perception of Christians. And there are these four barriers, you know. And you know, you may be thinking, you know, last week I came and I was all hyped up because we had this talk about evangelism and about God's calling and and I was motivated to do evangelism now and now I'm looking at all these barriers and it seems wow this seems like a pretty hard task seems like there are so many walls for people to climb over I don't feel very motivated to do evangelism anymore you know my my goal in bringing these up these things up is not to make you feel less motivated about evangelism I bring these things up because I want for us to have a realistic understanding of the challenges before us I'm bringing these things up because I care about how effective our evangelism methods are. Because to be frank, Christians today have a PR problem. Christians today have a relevance problem. It's not as simple as it used to be when it comes to evangelism. It used to be that most people who are not Christians more or less had Christian beliefs already had Christian paradigms or worldviews already, Christian values already, and what you really need to do is just remind them of what they already believe. You just need to you just need to go, you know what, you know, there's you know, after you die there's a heaven, you know, do you remember that? And they go, Oh yeah, I, I should do this instead. And so all you need to really do is just give them a pet talk, send them to a rally, and then stir up their emotions a little bit, get them more motivated, more hyped up, and then, you know, they're they're Christians again. That's what we used to that's what we used to do. But now Okay, it's not that way anymore. Many people have very non-Christian beliefs that are very deeply rooted in who they are, in their identity. And so in order for them to move from who they are to being a Christian, they need to climb over so many walls. And I think, therefore, it's important for us to know what those walls are. Another way to think about it is, the language that they speak, the language of the culture is so different from the language of God that they need a translator. And I want to be a part of a culture, uh, uh, sorry, I want to be a part of a movement of Christians 
that knows and understands both the language of God and the language of the culture. So that we can help these people who are so far away from Jesus one day come and embrace who Jesus is. There's something that gives me hope. Even when I think about all these cultural barriers, all these walls that people have that prevent them from understanding the gospel. And that is that God is a God who breaks down walls. God is a God who breaks down walls. And God breaks down walls faster than we can build those walls. God breaks down walls faster than we can build those walls. How do I know? Because he has proven it throughout history. I don't know if you've noticed, we talked about all these cultural barriers. All of these cultural barriers, I backed them up with scriptural references, meaning the early Christians struggled with all of these cultural barriers too. All these cultural barriers we have, they were challenges that the early Christians also had. The reason why we sort of don't realize that sometimes is we live in this sometimes we have this mentality of like oh these cultural barriers we have these challenges we have they're so unique to this age to this generation no one's had this stuff before and the christian the culture has never been so different before that's not necessarily true okay if you look at the roman empire in the time of uh, when christianity started cultural values were very very different from what christian uh, from, from what christianity had to offer Right, what we have is we have this bias because <clears throat> in recent history, America has been more or less a Christianized nation and, and we had a lot of Christian influence and so now we're slowly moving out of that and so all of a sudden we think it's the end of the world. But in reality, our, our current state, our culture, is a, our, our challenges that we have in our culture are more or less similar to the challenges we had throughout history. We might have different forms, might you know, uh, manifest themselves in a different way. But those, those challenges we have are the same challenges that many Christians have had throughout history from, from the book of Acts to now. And if you look at church history from the book of Acts to now, you'll see that God has a long proven track record of breaking down cultural barriers. God has a long track record of breaking down cultural barriers. And sometimes we forget how far we've come. We forget how many cultural barriers God has broken down to get us to where we are today. Just think about this for a second. Do you realize that at one point in time, there were no white Christians? At one point in time, there were no black Christians. At one point in time, there were no East Asian Christians. Because at one point in time, all Christians were common, uneducated Palestinian Jews living in Jerusalem. Okay, you might think about that for a second. How can a common, uneducated Palestinian Jew living in Jerusalem communicate the gospel to you? There are so many cultural barriers for that person to cross in order to communicate, to translate the gospel to you. How is that possible? It is possible because over the last 2,000 years, God has broken down Wall after wall, crossing geographical and political and cultural lines, bringing people like you to himself. God has done it over the past 2,000 years and he is still doing it today. God has used people like Peter to talk to Cornelius, people like Philip to talk to an Ethiopian eunuch. God is using people left and right to talk to people across cultural lines. And that is important to remember that God is behind the whole thing. Ultimately, we do evangelism not because we are good at it, not because we are smart at it, not because we are strategic about it, 
We do it because God is behind it. And he has a long proven track record of saving people. Saving people, not just people who are similar to the church, to the people in the church, but people who are dissimilar, different from the people in the church. And I want to remind you, God saved you. If you are a follower of Jesus, then that means that at one point in time, God used somebody to share the gospel with you. And now, God can also use you to share the gospel with somebody else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who breaks down walls. We thank you that even though our culture keeps putting up wall after wall, that there are so many barriers people have that prevent people from understanding and receiving who you are, you have a long proven track record of breaking down walls. Thank you that you have commissioned us to be your ambassadors, to be your translators, to communicate the gospel to a people who don't yet know, who don't yet understand. God, I pray that you give us wisdom. I pray you give us love. I pray you give us strategy in order to help people to understand so that we might win more of them, that more of them may be saved. And God, above all, we want to remember that ultimately it's not up to us, it's up to you. And ultimately it's not about our performance when it comes to the gospel, it's about your performance, which has already been done because Jesus died and rose again. And we have victory, we have freedom. God, we want to thank you for Jesus. Because we were far away from you, Jesus came down and contextualized the gospel to us. And he contextualized it not just through words, but through becoming a human being, through suffering with us, and living with us, and dying for us. Because you knew that the only way we could be saved, the only way we could understand, the only way our hearts could be made anew, is through Jesus becoming a human being. Thank you that you contextualized the gospel to us. You spoke the gospel to us in a way we can understand through Jesus becoming a human being and dying for us. Help us to understand that and embrace that as we communicate the gospel to others, as we do evangelism. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.